On the other side of Texas, the history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas halls, we roll on. We roll on. Thank you for tuning in and telling a friend that you hang out here on the other side of Texas. Glad to be with you for another week as we kick off as you listen live on the Monday where we have ahead Bud Kennedy, Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Give us the ins and outs of what he sees as uh, big stories in Texas politics right now. Always good to hear from a new voice. Bud Kennedy's a great voice to hear from. Longtime columnist there at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And then we'll get into a little Rager Gate with the latest on what's going on with the Rager Dykes situation. Sarah Self Wolbrook. Wolbrook. That's how you say her name. Wolbrook of the Avalanche Journal. For now, I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson. As we do roll along from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash voted Lubbock's Best Wash for five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations across the Hub City for the best wash around. Guaranteed. See your best location there at racerwash.com. This day in 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger was the second orbiter of NASA's Space Shuttle Program to be put into service after Columbia. Challenger was built by Rockwell International Space Transportation Systems Division. California, its maiden flight, began on April 4, 1983. The orbiter was launched and landed nine times before breaking apart 73 seconds into its 10th mission on January the 28th. I'm sorry if I just said 31, because I was looking at the humidity there on the satellite clock. On January 28th, 1986, resulting in the death of all seven crew members, including a civilian teacher, school teacher, It was the first of two shuttles to be destroyed in flight, but the other being Columbia. In 2003, the accident led to a a two-and-a-half-year grounding of the shuttle fleet. Flights resumed in 1988, flown by Discovery. I don't want to turn a tragedy into some simple lesson, but there is some semblance you know whenever I get on this program lots of times I give cultural and social critiques regional critiques state critiques and it's difficult for me sometimes because I don't want to be that guy I don't I don't want to be the hypocrite I I need to know that things are going well at my house and in my own place before I can begin to critique and in order to not cast aspersions on a larger place. And I bring that up to say that in the investigation, many of you know where I'm going, in the investigation, this is the New York Times from 
June 10th, 1986. This is the headline. Shuttle Commission blames NASA and rocket builders for Challenger explosion. This is the lead. The decision to launch the Challenger was flawed. Those who made that decision were unaware of recent history of problems concerning the O-rings and the joint and were unaware of the initial written recommendation of the contractor advising against the launch at temperatures below 53 degrees Fahrenheit and the continuing opposition of engineers after management reversed its position. They did not have a clear understanding of Rockwall's concern that it was unsafe to launch because of ice on the pad. If the decision makers had known all the facts, it is highly unlikely they would have decided to launch on January 28, 1986. The decision came down to this. Record low temperatures in Florida at that time. The O-rings were only made to withhold. And O-rings between the rockets and between metal joints in the aircraft were only made to withstand 53 degrees or higher. And that day on the pad, ice, 20-ish, 20s degrees at liftoff and they went ahead with it. Just a little thing, like an O-ring, made all the difference, and and fuel began to seep out and caught on fire as rockets blasted, and all seven members of the crew died. And I think back to another accident, and that being the Titanic. And what did the Titanic... What was its fatal flaw? It was the rivets. The rivets were made. Iron is cheaper than... At that time, iron was cheaper than steel. The rivet makers went with um, iron over steel, and iron could not withstand the blow of the glacier. I... um bring up the Challenger and the Titanic to say this as a father of four little ones in a house that I try to look after and I hope that I don't sound sanctimonious in this but it, it is the little things ladies and gentlemen it is the little things that make or break our success in life and the little things beginning at the Ponderosa whatever your Ponderosa is those are the things that matter at the end of the day. Now, I was at a bar of all places in Washington, D.C. one time, and there was a sign on the wall that said, Once you lose your integrity, the rest is a piece of cake. And in in our homes, if and I know a lot of our audience is in their 40s or younger, in our homes, the things that matter are the inches that are gathering between those ankles and those knees, and those knees and those thighs as those kids get bigger and bigger. And lots of times we look at everything but the little things, the intentional time that we put in, the the balls that we throw or we don't throw, the basketball practices we attend or we don't attend. And those are 
the little things. Those are the O-rings that can lead to success or failure later. Those are the rivets that can lead to success or failure later. And I just wanted to begin this program in, what was I? I think I was maybe in the second grade when this all went down in 86. Um, And I remember that and trying to figure out what was going on. And I don't make light of those lives that were lost or Reagan's speech that they touched the face of God. It was a, it was a huge moment in this country, and I don't mean to make little of it, but if we can make anything of it all these years later, it's the O-rings and the rivets that matter. And um, the success in, in, all of the, in all the accolades and all the professional... Uh, all the professional pedigrees that we can gather if the o-rings are faulty if the rivets are faulty nothing else matters and you know like i said it's difficult on this program lots of times i garner a critique and try to rave on in a different way but if our if our place our immediate place isn't secure then none of those other things matter so Look at your O-rings, look at your rivets, and uh, make sure, um, just make sure that they're good. And uh, it's those little things that matter in life. It's just the little things. And if I had uh, Robert Earl Keane, I'd cue up the little things, but I don't have it immediately in front of me. We're going to get to a break. We're going to get our friend Bud Kennedy on the program, break into some Texas politics, and begin on, change the mood a little bit as we go into the break, and from a big Monday in Lubbock, Texas, this is the other side of Texas, raving on, Jay West, Texas Leeson, glad you're with us. It's loud enough, you got is a big monday here edition of the program and we do have on the phone with us bud kennedy and a big game tonight at the united supermarkets arena tcu in texas tech bud kennedy fort worth star telegram texas tech picked by six what do you think is going to happen bud uh, it's always tough to go into lubbock i remember that from my sports writing days <laughs> How long did you write sports, bud? TCU has lost so many players over the year. They've lost. They've had three or four players uh, hurt. They've had four or five players leave. I'm amazed that they're competing as well as they are the Big 12. I was a sports writer for 15 years. I uh, was interested in politics as a as a kid. Covered and followed politics and government, and, and even hosted a candidate forum at my high school when we did one involving Hank Grover, of all people. That's how far back I go. But I wound up covering sports and writing about sports until, well, you know, about the time that everybody I went to high school with started retiring from football, it was time for me to retire from sports writing. So I've been covering the legislature, uh, Texas politics, Fort Worth politics, and everything going on in Fort Worth now for 30 years. So, Bud, tell me this. I don't believe, has Tech played at TCU yet? Have we played that game yet? I have not followed Frog basketball closely this year. I knew you were going to ask me that, and I don't think that's been played. Okay, so for Texas Tech fan base that's not in Fort Worth but maybe near, 
you cover the food beat there in Fort Worth, give them two places they need to go eat. Oh, well, you, you've got Dutch's Hamburgers on University, pretty close to the stadium in the basketball arena. Uh, those uh, That's some uh, some good Texas food, some uh, burgers, chili. Uh, has a, a full bar side with a draft house, too, for watching the game. So, you know, Dutch's is the closest place to go that's a, a good, reliable restaurant. Right next to it is Buffalo Brothers for uh, Buffalo Wings and, and Buffalo Hot Chicken and Buffalo Pizza. It's a... It's a uh, New York sports bar that uh, you find in the middle of Texas. So I think Dutch's and Buffalo Brothers are right there by the school. You don't have to go much further. The the, uh, the Hofbrau chain that we have down here, we still have some of the last remaining Hofbrau's, and they're a very good, reliable, middle-of-the-road steakhouse. Right now we have a lot of guests from your listening area here for the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo, mm-hmm. and I bet a lot of them will be eating tonight in the Hofbrau on University Drive near TCU and the Fort Worth Zoo. All right. Bud Kennedy breaking it all down for us, beginning with your stomach, and now we're going to go up to your head for a little bit. Bud Kennedy, tell me this. All the news right now is that 58,000 people who shouldn't have voted have voted. Over what duration of time, and why is this just now a thing? Why are we just now? I know that we just changed Secretary of State. Is that play into the mystery of why we're just hearing about this. I don't know about that. I know that the Tea Party groups and the grassroots groups have been shopping this since last summer, trying to find someone to listen to them and take up their cause. What they found is names that may be uh, people who signed up for a driver's license saying that they were a citizen, and they may match names of people who voted. Uh, you know, Some of them in the letters to tax assess to the county clerk's Across Texas, uh, the, the letter describes it as a weak match. Uh, some of them may not be the same people at all. Uh, you know, some of them may be the same people, but they've, you know, gone from being a green card to being a citizen since then. Um, they and the, the number about fifty-eight thousand non-citizens voted is new. When the uh, Tea Party groups tried to call attention to this uh, last year, they said that there were that there were thousands of foreign-born citizens. Who may have who may be registered voters, but even in the states like Colorado, where they've gone in and cracked down on this already and checked, they found that even the uh, even the the foreign-born uh, residents who went ahead and somehow and got voter registration cards, they didn't go ahead and vote. That only like 12 percent of them had voted. So this amounts to uh, over 22 years. They added up to 58,000 people. Uh, this adds up. This works out to about 2,000 per year that they think might or might not have been foreign-born and That's... might or might not have been eligible to vote at the time. You add up all the votes cast in 22 years, and it's 0.02 percent, two one-hundredths of a percent of the votes cast. Okay, so there's that percentage, but there are also two other points of context. Since you stopped writing sports columns, this has happened. That's number one, right, bud? And number two, I, I had to take a dig at you there. But it's been since that, that, that duration that, of content. That comes to Fort Worth March 2nd. I looked it up. <laughs> okay. And, and But it's over that So it's not within the last election cycle, 58,000, because the way the headlines have read is in the last election where there were all these close races – 58,000 people voted who shouldn't have voted. 
it's over a much longer duration of time. Obviously, there is a propaganda move to use this somehow. It's been redefined since last summer. Now it's 58,000 non-citizens voted. Last summer it was 58,000 names might match and might need to be looked into. So it's been uh, fluffed up into a bigger story, and it's supposed to reinforce the idea with Republican voters, and a lot of them are, are very uh, very upset and very prone to, to conspiracy theories, particularly here in Tarrant County, where all the, the county vote went solid for, for Republicans, except for Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke won the county, and Republicans won um, the rest of the straight-ticket county, county seat. But what? people are wondering about you know where all these Democrats are coming from. Some Republicans would like to think that they're not even from America. Giovanni Caprileone, a state representative, wins his race by I can't. I, I'd have to go back and look at he just, seventy thirty something yeah, like that. yeah one in a landslide. Charlie in, in Karen the, in the in the Beto year yeah in, Giovanni in, wins seventy thirty in Tarrant County. And then uh, Charlie Guerin runs a route as well. How in the world, Bud, explain to me why Tarrant County, where what we want, for listeners, just go Google Northeast Tarrant County. That is, when we're talking about Tea Party, and I personally believe there are like 12 different types of Tea Party people. It's just this, uh, it's this group that meshes together. And I, I don't think it can and, be and of simplest. course the, the, there there are the the libertarian the original Tea Party people the OGs of Tea Party that are the <laughs> the um, libertarians and then there are the uh, religious conservative groups that adapted the name Tea Party because it was a more effective brand than being Republican. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but few, how? Years. But I, I, how I does tell Tarrant people, County go for Beto? I tell people in Northeast Tarrant County there's a. There's a different Tea Party group for every Starbucks along that, along 1709. There's the, the Boiling Point Tea Party, the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party. You know, every little fork in the road has its own Tea Party. Yeah. And, how, how does how does Tarrant County go for Beto? Yeah. Uh, you know, there was some disenchantment here over Senator Cruz. He uh, he had not supported Lockheed the way some Lockheed people felt like he should. Uh, there was just a general feeling that he hadn't helped Lockheed Martin. Uh, Lockheed Martin Aeronautics, the county's number one employer. There was a general feeling that he had not been supportive on uh, city needs and business issues. And in general, uh, you know, he's a Houston guy, and the uh, and you know he, he was he does not have the profile in Fort Worth or Tarrant County. Uh, he sort of people here sort of felt like he took it for granted. Uh, Beto came in and worked hard, and it is very much a purpling county, Fort Worth and Arlington. Within their city limits are both Democratic cities. Uh, Fort Worth even voted for Lupe Valdez for governor over Greg Abbott. Uh, Arlington uh, did vote narrowly for Abbott, but both Fort Worth and Arlington went strongly for Beto. It's the million people in the north half of the county who went strongly for Republicans, and the uh, you know the south half of the county is purpling up, and the, uh, the you know the Democrats in the cities are starting to have more of a say so. Uh, Bud Kennedy, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, glad he's with us here on the program. Tell us about, what are a couple of Texas political angles that you're taking early on as we're, I I guess, like maybe 120 days in or less of the legislature? Well, you know, I think this this whole claim about the 
the you know illegal non-citizens voting or whatever is interesting because it's really not about anything going on right now. It's about setting the stage for the 2020 election and, and setting the theme in the legislature now that there needs to be more cracking down on illegal voting, unauthorized voting. There needs to be more restrictions. Uh, there need to, needs to be more screening. Um, you know, the thing is, any former election official, probably uh, one that's currently employed won't tell you this, but a former election official will tell you that they can't make elections perfect. They can get them awfully doggone close to where only the people vote who are supposed to vote, but they can't make them perfect. No matter what you do in a school board election or a city election, somebody's going to vote who moved out of town the week before and isn't really eligible, shouldn't really be voting. There'll be people in a, in a trailer park who just brought their trailers in to vote and, and then leave after the election. Uh, you know, the elections are not as perfect as people want them to be. So um, the, the continued debate over perfecting the vote uh, is setting up for 2020. The other thing that's really interesting that you see in this legislature, the reason there is so much push and effort to get things done this session on uh, property tax reform or on school funding, and of course those two may be hooked together and go hand in hand, the reason there's so much effort for that is because uh, the next session in 2021 is going to be dominated by redistricting, talk redistricting after the 2020 census. Mm -hmm. Then in 2023, the legislature will be very different. It'll be more urban. Uh, it may be a little bit more democratic. You know, the, the feeling is that whatever the Republicans in control of the legislature want to get done, this session is the best opportunity to do it, particularly when it comes down to property tax reform. So if you're going to get it done, get it done now. If you're going to get something big done, this is the year to get it done. Yeah, that, that's the thinking, and that's what's behind some of the, uh, you know, even the, the speakers talk about keeping things serious and and not letting trivial asides uh, take up your time. You know, we saw Speaker Bonin this last week uh, for the first time proving what he said about not letting trivial items take up his time when uh, the the open carry folks uh, set up a stir about. Uh, Pancho Navarras being the head of Homeland Security, and Nicole Collier, also a Democrat, being a head of criminal justice. The open carry folks felt like they weren't going to be able to get their bill through the House, and they were giving uh, Bonin grief over having Democrats chairing both those committees. And Bonin just bluntly wrote back and said, look, you know, if you can't count to five on a committee, on a, if, you, if you can't count to five votes on a nine-member committee for your bill, I'm not, I don't have time to worry with you. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's pretty clear that he said strongly that he's going to support the NRA and what the NRA and, and the Texas State Rifle Association want in Texas, which means we keep licensing, uh, we keep the, the training, uh, we keep the structure that's been put in place that's been a great success for uh, for, for Texas uh, gun carry laws. And Pancho Navarez, side note, be on this program tomorrow, 535 uh, we'll hear from the chairman himself on this. Uh, but- Pancho, Pancho, you know, that that really has a little extra meaning because uh, one of the open carry uh, protesters from Fort Worth, uh, one of the, the libertarian who is who has claimed he's running for governor sometimes, uh, actually had a confrontation with Pancho and stuck his foot in Pancho's door, and, and they were they were harassing Pancho about the open carry bill. So Pancho's had some some personal encounters 
with the uh, the open carry and, and of course we have open carry in Texas so when I say open carry it's really about constitutional carry now it's really about licenseless carry so uh, it's about whether everyone can carry and you don't need licenses or training uh, the the uh, most of the gun groups in Texas uh, most of the standard gun groups still support licensing because a lot of them sell training and sell licensing and, and help you with licensing and so it's a it's a revenue source for a lot of the the, uh, the shooters in Texas, so they yeah. don't want to do away with licensing. Uh, but Kennedy, this is my last question for you. It's going to be a broad little curveball, and uh, your peer Ross Ramsey's on this program every Wednesday is used to my curveballs. But it must be astonishing to you, or maybe it's not. But the waning influence of the Northeast Tarrant County Tea Party, which seemed so strong some four years ago is now being disregarded by the likes of Dennis Bonin. Is that surprising to you, or what What do you make of that? Because in Northeast Tarrant County, they were, they were carrying the banner for a lot of people across the state. What do you make about their waning influence now? I have never written that they had any influence. I have never, I, frankly, I've been befuddled at the the fantasies in Austin about the power of the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party. Hmm. Uh, we don't see it here. They haven't been able to win elections or, or defeat anybody they wanted to defeat. And, uh, you know, it is a group that has uh, they've fractured almost from the moment it was founded. Uh, you know, Julie McCarty and Connie Burton didn't stay together once they founded it. And uh, it's divided and continued to divide and divide and divide. And, uh, you know, I've I, I don't write about the the influence of the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party. Uh, you know that uh, the, you know much of their money in the past. Uh, they they've had years when most of their money came from Empower Texans to pay for their meetings. Um, they were pretty transparently uh, not really a, a local grassroots group at all. And um, I, I I I have not been the one promoting that pretense. Yeah. Okay. Well, Bud Kennedy, we appreciate your time. Always good reflections from you and i know that podcast i've gotten a lot of notes get bud on more often uh people <laughs> who, who listen to the program we appreciate well, your time i know i know i should have been talking about constitutional carry and i was using the general term open carry uh but i you know i know what the law is in texas and and what we have and what we can do of course it's the licenseless carry now that's the issue all right well if you're Thank just you. tuning in you can hear Thank this up on our podcast, Bud Kennedy, Fort Worth, Star Telegram, Fort Worth Star Telegram. Thank you, Bud. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Going to get into a break and get Sarah Self Warbrick on this program for you local listeners interested in the Rager Dyke situation. About uh, 28 till the top of the hour. Be right back with you here on the other side. I'm in my Red Raider garb. I'm ready to go to the game, but ready to produce a great radio program for a go out. In order to run a great radio program, you got to go to one of Lubbock's finest, Sarah Self Walbrick, there at the, uh, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. Get in and let's talk a little bit about what we call Riggergate. Uh, Sarah Self Warbrick, how are you? 
I am hanging in there, Jay. Yeah, um, we have our Rager Gate. Can you hear that Rager Gate music in the background? A little bit. Okay, yeah. The, the listeners can hear it well. That works. <laughs> so, Sarah, what is going on with all of this? Like... It seems like they're going to get bailed out now. What is going for listeners? Like, this is what I hear from listeners a lot. If I did something like that, I'd go to jail. I'd be in prison. But maybe people are going to get bailed out. I don't understand what's going on. Just break okay, it down well, for us. Know, I'm okay, expecting well, I was a good. To think, well, I was trying to think of when the last time I came on was. When, what the last update I did with you. But um, I, think I, think that, start... I think it was Ford was reticent against the McDougal offer. Okay, and that's an ongoing thing. So let's go back to last week, roughly, maybe a little over a week ago now. Um, it was a Friday night um, when judge, bankruptcy court judge Robert Jones um, gave Ford permission to repossess its vehicle that are still on the Rager Dykes lot. Okay. Okay. Then they're so, still on, not off, but on. Yes, these, this is the stuff that um, is still at the dealership that Ford has the right to. So um, they filed a motion to be able to seize those vehicles, and it kind of hung out in um, court for a while. Um, there was a court hearing in that time frame that um, the judge said he felt like he couldn't um, make a ruling at the time. So we got a ruling late on a Friday night that basically said that Ford could um, seize their assets back. So this was really kind of the first time that, um, first strike against Rager Dykes, I feel like. Um, it was a big hit. So um, I think that that is where a lot of um, what's happening currently kind of um, snowballed. Okay. So go on. So, okay. So um, basically, in um, the judge's ruling for that, um, he essentially said that he didn't have much confidence um, in the reorganization plan that's backed by Mark McDougal, Finn Ewing, and Rick Dykes. Um, so that's kind of where we're at today. So tomorrow, actually, um, there is a big meeting in Dearborn, Michigan, um, with Ford Motor Credit between this reorganization group and the Ford folks to hopefully come to a global settlement. Um, what exactly that means. So what you're saying, out. that Mark McDougal's in Dearborn? Yes, he is. Okay. Go For ahead. a meeting tomorrow. So tomorrow could end up being a pretty big day. So as of right now, Ford um, is trying to sever ties, wants nothing to do with um, Rager Dykes going forward. Um, but uh, the counsel for Rager Dykes has argued that they need vehicles to be able to continue um so that relationship is pretty crucial. I mean, Ford um, floors the vehicles for so many of these dealerships. So um, basically, how I'm understanding it, the reorganization team um, is going up there to hopefully work out some kind of deal to where this relationship can maybe continue. Okay. So what does that mean for criminal charges in all this? Let's say well, that things work out well tomorrow in Dearborn. Mm -hmm. Are people still going to the pen? Well, I still don't have any um, official information where I can comment on that. Um, we have seen in court filings that there is um, some kind of investigation going on. Um, otherwise, I don't have anything 
on that. Um, but it is would, that through uh, the Lubbock County District Attorney's Office? Is do you know of an investigation yeah. going on through there? Um, I know. Hold on, let me pull up. We actually we had an update today in the civil case that I love it. On I love it, it when um, you so say the words right "pull now. up" on this program. <laughs> well, now we're going call, places. Exactly. I always call you from my desk phone, so I can do this because I know you always uh, you always have a question that I need it. So um, this is a direct quote from a filing um, from a document that was filed by um, Rick Dykes and Bart Rager's personal lawyers on Friday. Um, so direct quote here. Upon learning of Shane Smith's disclosure um, that he had fudged the numbers, Rager Dykes Auto Group terminated Smith's employment and referred Smith's disclosure to the local U.S. Attorney's Office, which has commenced an investigation. Okay, so it's at the Attorney's Office. Correct. And maybe at the Lubbock County Office as well. I know what I get in court filings. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, but I mean, I think. But the Sarah, release, there set yeah. the, set the record straight. Where where is the investigation right now? Uh, so far as you know, you're saying from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And as far as I know, it's happening, but that's about it. Uh, we have not been given any kind of details or updates or anything like that. All I know is what is um, put in these sporadic court filing yeah. in the civil case. So let so, me ask um, you the question yeah. that I'm going to get from a bazillion listeners on the podcast. That I probably won't be able to answer, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I appreciate the preface. Always. What they're going to say in the biggest small town in the world is mm-hmm. his office was, Shane Smith's office was right beside um, Bart Rager's office. How did Bart not know what was going on? Um, I think that's definitely still a question, um, but as far as um, official accounts that have been filed in court, um, he didn't. So um, even, again, the filing from Friday um, gave a little bit more details. Um, the story was put online about 10 minutes before um, I started talking with you, um, but still maintaining that um, Rager and Dykes didn't know anything. Um, and putting putting it all in Shane Smith still. Hmm. Okay. So we'll see. So what else do we need to know? Um, I can give a little update on what I wrote about today. So um, in the ongoing civil case, um, this is the original case of Ford Credit versus um, now it's just um, Rick Dykes and Bart Rager individually um, because of all the bankruptcies. So um, a few weeks ago, Ford asked for a summary judgment in this case, which would mean that this would not go to a full trial. Um, And basically, their argument was that there's enough evidence that um, there was um, fraud going on for there to be a summary judgment and to not play this out um, for much longer. Um, So counsel for Rick Dykes and Bart Rager personally filed um, a motion on Friday basically asking um, for that not to be made, that judgment to not be made at this time, and to give them some more time to um, gather evidence, um, go through this discovery period, and try to figure out what exactly happened. So six months later, we're trying to figure out what happened still. Who's going to figure it out, Sarah? You? Well, (laughs) I wish, but uh, we'll see, I guess. Um, In this filing, they did specifically... um, kind of touch on some documents that they would like to get 
um, things like that. Most of that is related to um, Shane Smith's communication with Ford Credit, um, particularly an employee that he had worked with um, when Smith worked at Ford Credit. So um, I think they're still just trying to figure a lot out. There's still so many unanswered questions. And again, um, we're coming up on six months um, this week. So um, yeah, there's still a lot of moving parts that we just don't have answers to, unfortunately. Yeah. So how does it all shape up? Give us the, um, you're now you're the editor of the Avalanche Journal here on the program. (laughs) How does this shape up? What do you, so tomorrow we find out what and how does that impact the case itself? Um, it's a good question. I, we really don't know a whole lot about what this global settlement meeting means. Um, if that's global meaning encompassing the entire settlement. Hopefully, yes, but, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the details of what, if they're going to be talking about the reorganization plan or just coming to a settlement of some sort and we just settle all this and we're done. Um, I don't know. I will call Mark McDougall um, tomorrow afternoon and hopefully find out. Um, But we'll see. Tomorrow should be a pretty big day, though, for whatever is happening next in this case. How about I call Mark McDougall tomorrow and ask him to come on the show? I, I don't think that would be a bad idea, but he will you, be in Michigan, so you, hopefully would he would you credit me? Good. Would you credit me in the Avalanche Journal if well, we get him on? Jay, you know we're we're good friends to other side of Texas, as you are to us. I would always give credit if you got okay. it first. All right. <laughs> Just making sure. Yeah, of uh, course, of course. Sarah, I know that this is, have you ever seen anything like this? I absolutely haven't. Um, is this something with, that would be on your resume later, like... I covered this situation. Um, I think I can definitely say I understand bankruptcy law better than <laughs> I ever thought I would. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it has been a whirlwind. I don't think anybody um, in Lubbock has necessarily seen anything like this. Maybe since Benny Judah, def- uh, things like that. I mean, there have been some other cases, but um, I do think that this is um, unprecedented. Yeah. She is Sarah Self Walbrook. Wal- I always want to say Warbrook. It's okay. It's a hard name. <laughs> it's Walbrook there. at the Like Daddy Warbucks. Um, Close, but, yes. But not. It's Walbrook. But not. <laughs> there. At uh, the Avalanche Journal. Appreciate your intrepid reporting, and we look forward to... I'll try not to scoop you with McDougal, but I may. I, I'll, I'll let you know. That's fine. That's fine. We will talk soon. Wow. Uh, a lot of fate in Lubbock, Texas is going to be decided in Dearborn, Michigan tomorrow. Appreciate your time, Sarah. You Always. Find her Thanks, Jay. Sarah from the AJ there on Twitter at Sarah That's from it. the AJ. All That's right. That's it. Well, All right. Thanks, Jay. I bid you a good Monday. Yeah, uh, have a good a, time at the game. A You're good, loud. A good big Monday there. Yes. Yes. Let's All right. Go. All right. Bye. Appreciate you. Uh, that is Sarah from the AJ. Check her out. So, we have such great talent here, and people just don't appreciate it enough. Appreciate Sarah. And uh, going to get into the closing thoughts here on the program. And uh, got a good story. When does green go wrong? Not green go wrong. When does green go wrong? Going to get into a story from Georgetown. Be our friends at the Texas Standard. Stay with us here on the program. Green can go wrong. We'll figure it out as we come back here on the other side.
You know, from time to time, I just want to thank Apple for bringing you this program. We run this program off of an iMac, and then I've got my iPad Pro right beside me, and my iPad or my iPhone right here in my hand. Uh, appreciate all of those, you know, made in California or designed in California, and appreciate everybody else who chipped in as well. I got a question over the weekend uh, to me through email. Tell me about your bumper music there on the program. And I would just let me run through some that is running currently on the other side of Texas. Come back down, Flatland Calvary. Not Calvary, but Cavalry. Flatland Cavalry. Uh, Billy Creek by Charlie Shafter. Oklahoma Stars, which you just heard, Jamie Lynn Wilson. This time around, Randy Rogers Band, Canyon, by Joshua Ray Walker, and Tornado Warning, Turnpike Troubadours, which everybody should ask Alexa to play while they're fixing up their meat to put on the smokers, and then Someone Someday by Red Shahan Music. Um, that's their Twitter, Red Shahan Music, Red Shahan someone someday which is what we close out every program with want to appreciate and tell them that we appreciate our friends at new slang for putting that up that's new slang at underscore new slang there on twitter thomas mooney running that operation uh go out and we hear a lot about green here in west texas and Lots of people are apprehensive about green, and this may be a reason why. The other side is we conclude this program. The city north of Austin, and this being Georgetown, Texas, made headlines when it signed a 20 to 25 year contracts with solar and wind energy providers at a fixed rate in 2012. The costs of energy have plummeted since then though reports the texas standard and the city is on the hook for excess energy it thought it could sell back for at least as much as they bought it for georgetown spent 8.6 million dollars more on energy than it had budgeted driven largely by wind and solar contracts since last november the city has been trying to renegotiate its contracts with energy providers. In the meantime, the city will take $1.2 million, or at least around 20%, less from the utility this year than it will make up with reserves, delays in some non-essential hires and capital projects will contribute to the budget adjustment. The collapse of natural gas prices have reshaped the market the past six years, says General Manager of Georgetown's utility, Jim Briggs. Quote, it didn't forecast the prices we're seeing now, which threw off our projections. Welcome to the energy game. Critics have accused the city of being too interested in gaining a green reputation at expense of its residents. Quote, why did Georgetown buy so much extra electricity, said 
Bill Peacock, director of research for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, <clears throat> which I have great and deep and steep criticism for on occasion. But just to show you I'm fair, I'm giving him his due here, Bill Peacock. It was because they wanted to be able to go and tell the world they were 100% renewable and they needed enough to cover their costs at peak during the summer. What Bill Peacock will not admit is that one of the leading gurus of Texas Public Policy Foundation is Tim Dunn, who also heads up Empowered Texans, Tim Dunn being a huge oil man, and that's where a lot of this green energy breaks down, what you need to see behind the scenes. Now, I think the Texas Standard has a fair story here, but you need to understand the background. The city was featured in Al Gore's An Inconvenient Sequel, and Mayor Dale Ross, who identifies as Republican, who identifies as Republican, often speaks at climate change conferences, a city-sponsored study estimated they earned $19 million in publicity from the attention, but city officials say the budget problems would have been the same regardless of how the contracts were structured. They said that wind and solar were... They went... That's not me misreading. They went with the most competitive... Competitive the most competitive bids at the time. Sorry about that. If we had chosen back at the time a gas product or coal product or something of that nature, we would be, we would still be in the same situation. Our use David Morgan, Georgetown city manager, many city contract, uh, many cities contract for energy Uh, more energy than they need to account for growth and he said Georgetown is growing fast it was listed as the sixth fastest growing city in the country by the US census according to city officials the only council mandate was that the city would be at 30% renewable by 2030 so you can see the ins and outs of green and up in the panhandle the cap rock and down into big country you certainly see all the turbines and it affects us i mean it, it there are there are oil counties and there are non-oil counties but it's still where energy is produced whether that be wind solar or oil and it's fascinating to me on this program to sit back and to watch all those dynamics at play where that's traditional fossil fuels or renewable energy. Georgetown at the head stake of that. I'm interested in your thoughts. If you want to give me your thoughts, you're listening to this program. Lots of you live, uh, a whole lot of you on the podcast. Your thoughts on renewable energy, J-A-Y, at other side of Texas. For now, I got to get home, going to get home, great family, and we're probably going to go have some above average hot dogs at the Texas Tech Big Monday game. Appreciate you tuning in and telling friends that you do the same for Bud Kennedy, for Sarah Self Wool 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 Brick. There, 
at the uh, Avalanche Journal. Appreciate her updating us on what's going on with Rager Gate and the Rager Dykes fiasco. Until next time, Ravon buddies, Ravon. We'll see you next time. Other side of Texas. Who we wanna be?